0: I have a very clear memory of being in South Africa when Mandela was inaugurated as president uh, for for the very first time. And I suspect by the accents I hear around the church, I wasn't the only one. Um, I was traveling at the time, um, and my sister was working in South Africa. So I was heading down to see her. And I remember us just, admittedly, just on the television watching the ceremony uh, at her house in Pietermaritzburg. And it was a huge, grand occasion. Um, There were more African heads of state than I think had ever gathered in one place before. Um, And it was, of course, a fascinating time to be mainly hitchhiking uh, around South Africa meeting all sorts of people with different perspectives on what was going on. Um, And, of course, some were terrified by what this might mean for the country. But most were completely thrilled, dare I say occasionally, a little naively. I remember a chap... Um, that I was hitchhiking with, assuring me that Mandela was going to buy us all cars and houses. Um, And of course, uh, it hasn't been a straightforward journey for South Africa since then, as uh, many of you will know. But at that time, the feeling of excitement and hope was extraordinary. Uh, The psalm that we're looking at this morning is really about the enthronement of God, God being inaugurated as king. It was probably part of a ceremony that celebrated uh, the enthronement of God, uh, uh, his enthronement over the world that would have been used regularly in the calendar of the, the Israelite people. And of course, the idea of God being king is a very familiar one to us, isn't it? We've, um, it's, it's been... Uh, our service so far has already been saturated with that idea. But actually... It's an absurd thing to say in this day and age, isn't it? Um, imagine uh, in the office tomorrow morning, uh, or in a coffee shop, or wherever you might find yourself tomorrow morning, somebody burst in and said, Now who's in charge here? And you leapt up and said, Jesus! They'd put you away, wouldn't they? <laughs> or maybe a bit more poignantly, um, if you imagine somebody walking into a hospice or into uh, a refugee camp. Um, And saying, who's in charge here? And you bursting out, Jesus! Um, It sounds rather absurd. I don't know about you, but I I often feel quite apologetic uh, about the claims of Christ being Lord over my own life, let alone that of those around me and in the wider world. Um, And I think that's partly because it's quite a hard idea to believe. Um, I, think, I think it's also partly because we are suspicious of anyone who claims to have authority over us. We don't, let's face it, see, um, we don't have, hold our politicians in the highest regard. Um, the principal at Wycliffe Hall, where I studied um, during the election, he kept telling us that politicians, like nappies, need to be changed regularly and for the same reason. Um, but we expect those who rule over us to be mediocre at best. We expect them to be un- unable or, or even maybe unwilling to really affect real change in our lives. <clears throat> but we're supposed to feel different about the idea of the reign of God over us. We're supposed to have a breathless excitement about the idea. In fact, the word uh, there in verse 2, where it says, proclaim his salvation, the the connotations of that word uh, would be of somebody bursting in and running up to the front, having come from the palace and stopping to catch their breath and eventually announcing to us that there is a new king Admittedly, not uh, our sort of um, slightly figurehead Queen Liz, uh, or even uh, Mandela, but a real king whose reign is undisputed um, and whose reign is going to bring peace and prosperity for all. That's the connotation of that word proclaim, herald a new king. And, of course, that's the heart of the Christian message, and it's particularly the heart of this psalm. Now, if you think that that sounds slightly absurd in West London today it also sounded absurd um, in the original context in ancient Israel look with me at verses four and five for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise he is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the nations are idols but the Lord made the heavens I think these verses are actually really pivotal uh, to the whole of the psalm and we're going to focus a little bit on them I don't know what you imagine when you see the phrase, the gods of the nations. I basically think of small wooden statues that would have sat in the corner of people's houses, and I imagine them to be entirely impotent, and therefore I'm slightly unimpressed by the idea of the the Israelite God being greater than the gods of the nations. But that's not at all how it would have been heard uh, by its original hearers. Um, It would have actually been something of a jaw-dropping claim. It would have sounded absurd. Uh, one of the reasons that we, we miss how absurd it sounds is because in our English Bibles we read the Lord when it's talking about the a- Israelite God. And the Lord already kind of assumes a sort of uniqueness, doesn't it? Um, but if you were to read it in, in, in the original Hebrew, it, it says Yahweh, God has a name. Um, now, uh, bear, bear with me a moment, um, I think, I think it's interesting that he has a name, because you give names to things that need to be distinguished from other things, don't you? So, for example, if you allow me to be frivolous for a moment, if, if I was to say the cat, I can only say that and it makes sense if there's only one cat, but if there are sort of cats everywhere, I, I might have to say Moggy or Ginger or whoever else, but you need to be a little bit more specific if there are a number of them. And that's a little bit how the name Yahweh would have functioned in that, in that world. There were thousands of gods of some name or another that, would have, that the people would have been conscious of. And, of course, actually Yahweh, from this pitiful little country called Israel, would by no means have been the most impressive or the most revered. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, one god uh, in particular that uh, would have been in people's minds as they heard this. I'm going to read you a short extract uh, from something called Anuma Elish, which is a Babylonian myth um, that comes from uh, before this psalm was written. And would have created some of the imaginative background um, that would have been in the minds of of the the hearers in Israel. Um, And in uh, in this extract, you're reading about a god called Marduk, who was the patron god of Babylon. Um, and one of the most important gods of the ancient Near East. Um, and he is preparing to attack Tiamat, and Tiamat is the god of the oceans and of primordial chaos. Um, and if, if you spend too much time with me, you'll realise that the theme of primordial chaos is something of a favourite of mine, so it might appear quite regularly, I'm sorry. Um, and I, I feel a little bit like Indiana Jones as I read this. You, I feel like I should have had to blow the, the sand off a tablet. Uh, but let me read. This is, so this is uh, Marduk preparing to go and fight Tiamat. Uh, then the Lord, the Lord there means Marduk, not Yahweh. Um, then the Lord raised up the storm flood, his mighty weapon. He mounted the storm chariot, irresistible and terrifying. He harnessed and yoked it to a team of four. The killer, the relentless, the trampler, the swift. Sharp were their teeth, bearing poison. They were versed in ravage and destruction skilled. On his left was combat that repels all the zealous. On his right he posted smiter, terrifying in battle. His cloak wrapped him in an armour of terror, a fearsome halo lay upon his head. The Lord went forward and followed his course. Towards raging Tiamat he set his face. And as the story unfolds, uh, there's a rather gory and graphic description of of a very thorough victory over Tiamat, and as a result, Marduk becomes the sort of the, the most important and splendid god of the Pantheon of Gods in Babylon. So, that just gives you a little bit of an insight into what might have been in the background when someone talked about the other gods. So, with gods like Marduk uh, in mind, this psalmist from this pitiful little country of Israel claims that Yahweh is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Um, he, even, he even ridicules them. There's a little play on words, which uh, you wouldn't see unless you can speak Hebrew, which I can't, but my computer does. Um, and uh, the first rule of preaching is that don't, you're not supposed to use Greek and Hebrew, so I'm sorry. But I think, I think it's insightful a little bit. Um, so the gods, Elohim, are worthless, Elilim. Okay, so that's this is sort of almost like it's a sort of playground chart. Playground chant: Elohim, Elohim, Elohim Can you imagine he's doing this to Marduk, the guy who has conquered the oceans? Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. You can tell I wasn't I wasn't much for a playground tease, well. <laughs> Um But he looks at Marduk with his poisoned teeth um, and his armor of terror, and he teases him, calls him a worthless idol in contrast to Yahweh, verses 5 and 6. But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. So the psalmist is making this extraordinary claim that Yahweh is greater than Marduk of Babylon. He is greater than Zeus of Greece. He is greater than Baal of Canaan. He is greater than Atom of Egypt. Is he greater than the gods of London what are the voices what are the messages in our culture uh, which seem to hold sway for us what are the philosophical trends maybe that make us feel that we need to be apologetic for this idea that Yahweh rules but here's the important point in all of this the idea that Yahweh is enthroned, the idea that Yahweh is bigger than these other gods, is a great thing. This is great news. It is an idea to be celebrated with that breathless excitement that I mentioned earlier. Let me draw out a few comparisons between all the other gods and Yahweh that would have, been, that would have struck the original hearers. So remember Marduk and Tiamat and all these other gods caught in these cosmic battles that very much characterised the mythology of the ancient world. And the humans, of course, in all of this, lived in constant terror of just basically getting caught in the crossfire uh, between these gods. It would be a bit like if you've seen The Hobbit or read The Hobbit uh, when the dwarfs are cowering against the cliff edge as the stone giants are pelting at each other. That's a little bit what it would have felt like to exist in that world. What great news, verse 10, that Yahweh reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Another comparison for you. Um, Generally, these gods were at war with each other because they were vying for control of each other's domains. So you might have the storm god fighting the sea god. You might have the, the god of the sun fighting the god of darkness. What great news, verse 11, that Under Yahweh, the one creator God, all of these domains actually are united in praise of him. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before Yahweh. Let me give you one more quick comparison. Humans in the ancient uh, world were basically created to do the work of the gods, so that the gods could actually just chill out and not have to do anything, any of the hard graft. That's why we exist in that mindset. Um, And so, of course, the minute we're not actually terribly useful, we may as well just be destroyed. Um, These gods uh, were petulant, they were selfish, they were unpredictable, and they had to be appeased by any way that people possibly could. Okay? Imagine living in that world. What great news in these opening verses here that Yahweh is a God of salvation. He is a God who has come and redeemed his people. He is a God of marvellous deeds. What great news there at the end of our psalm uh, that he's a God that can be trusted who, to act with justice. Yahweh is trustworthy and compassionate and it is he who reigns. Before we close, I want to make one point out one more move that uh, is that we find in this psalm, and that is simply this that the reign of God is not only great news, but it is something that we are invited to participate in. Um, We're invited to actively make that choice uh, to enthrone him in our own lives. He is king, so let him be king of our own lives. And to illustrate this, I want to tell you a, a quick Old Testament story that would have sat in the background of this psalm. Um, if you were to, uh, don't, you don't need to do it now, but if you were to flick open 1 Chronicles 16, um, you would find uh, that um, our psalmist here is borrowing or referencing, I think of the phrase, or downright plagiarizing uh, a lot of the, the material that David uses uh, at a very special moment in Israelite history. And it is the occasion when the Ark of Yahweh is brought back to Jerusalem. Now, the the Ark was, as many of you will know, it was a a big box with beautifully ornamented gold that contained the stone tablets on which Yahweh had written the law. uh, That happens within the Exodus story. Um, And this box signified the presence of God with his people. It, It lived in the holiest holy place within the temple. And it would have gone out with them in battles um, uh, to represent his power at work uh, in the armies and in all of the life of Israel. Uh, to cut a very long story short, the Ark had ended up rather disused. It had ended up being uh, stored in an insignificant village out in the countryside of Israel. And it was neglected and it was gathering dust Um, And, of course, this reflected the fact that Yahweh was no longer seen as the God of Israel. Yahweh had been deposed by all these other gods in the lives of the Israelite people. They had forgotten him. They had forgotten what it means to live in a way that is distinct. And they looked morally exactly like all the other nations around them. But when King David starts his rule, one of the first things he does is he goes and gets the ark, and with this enormous ceremony, uh, he parades it back into Jerusalem. And, of course, he does it as, to, to, to make it very clear that Yahweh was back. Yahweh was back at the centre of the life of the Israelite people. And as the ark enters uh, Jerusalem, David is dancing uh, with uh, breathlessness, uh, And he commands his people to sing a new song. Not because there's anything wrong with the old songs. He's not getting sick of Matt Redman. Um, But because Yahweh's goodness is new, is always new. Um, And living with him enthroned as our king always requires a new new daily, fresh decision. uh, Something that grabs hold of our desires. So he commands us, verse 7... Ascribe, or, or give, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Give to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship him in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. And of course, this is a theme that we find throughout the Bible. Um, and as we've already sung this morning, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. In Christ, this idea of the of uh, The the reign of God finds its fulfilment. To give you a little example, the the as you know the story of Him calming the water. Everyone's caught in this terrible storm and they're terrified for their lives, and they're imagining Tiamat and the gods of chaos uh, overwhelming them. And Jesus stands up and He says, "Be still," and the water is still. With a word, He can command uh, the sea in a way that even Marduk couldn't. Marduk had to equip himself for battle, but Jesus just stands over it and makes it still. So when you read of the glassy sea uh, in Revelation, we sing, do you remember that line? Uh, The saints casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. That's taken from Revelation 4. And there's the idea that the sea is now perfectly still. There is no longer any battle in it. It is a place of complete peace. Jesus is on the throne. So that is what the psalm is asking us to participate in. We are invited to cast our crowns uh, before the one who is truly enthroned um, over all the earth. Let's have a moment of quiet and let me direct us uh, in a word of prayer. Maybe take a moment to think about the coming week. When will the idea of Jesus being king seem most absurd this week? How will you remember that everything that the world chases after are worthless idols? In what ways? Do you need to bring God back from the forgotten fringes to the centre of your life? What would it mean to celebrate that Jesus is king? Jesus, we recognise that you are king over all things. That wherever we go this week... You are king there too. And we pray that you would help us to participate in that uh, for your glory. Amen.